0: We're hearing a lute song from the 17th century by Thomas Campion. And here is what we can learn about Campion from Dr. J. Marks. Thomas Campion was an English physician, poet, and composer who was born in 1567. Campion first studied law, but had little sympathy with or respect for legal studies. He then spent three years on the continent and received the M.D. degree, from the University of Caen in 1605. After returning to England, Campion practiced as a doctor in London from 1606 until his death in 1620, probably from the plague. Campion's literary output included poetry, songs, and treatises on poetry. He wrote in both Latin and English, nunc omnes quoque musicum et poetam, now they all recognize Campion, the musician, the poet, and the doctor. That's an epigram, number 167, from book one by Thomas Campion. And it's from an essay by Dr. J. Marks of RX List in 2021. Thomas Campion bringing his talents for music, poetry, and medicine together. As it happens, Barbara Kennedy has written an essay titled The Healing Art of Thomas Campion, suggesting Campion was a believer in the power of music to heal body and soul. We're about to meet a writer of songs who is a trained classical musician, who is especially fond of singing English madrigals from the time of Thomas Campion, and he brings his own talents for composing and writing together in his band, Drug, with his commitment to use those talents in the service of a world in need of healing. Derek Jolly holds a Master of Science degree from the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, and he has a good deal of experience in clinical research. Take the group's name, Cuddle Drug, and we'll find that it refers to what Harvard Medical School calls the love hormone the hormone released by cuddling, giving someone a hug, and research shows that music also seems to have the ability to increase oxytocin levels, especially when people sing in a group, which adds to bonding. Cuddle Drug recently released a new album titled Bed of Thorns, and Derek Jolly stopped in to talk about the recording, the band, and his life in music.
1: I believe that my indie style punk, rock, pop, cuddle drug stuff only is benefited, augmented, so to speak, by my classical training, by me bringing in aspects of Baroque music from being a classical voice, from being a singer, right? From all of what I do on this side translates well to this side and vice versa, especially with this new cuddle drug album. It's very rare to hear any cuddle drug music that is purely straightforward punk rock, pop punk, all that kind of stuff that I've played in the past. Indie rock, there's always oh, here's a three part harmony. Oh, here's a horn corral. Oh, here's something else that has a little bit of a quote that might make somebody like yourself that is well-versed and is a lover of classical music to be like, oh, wait a minute, I recognized that. Or, oh, wow, it's surprising that they didn't have a parallel fifth there. Or, you know, that type of thing. I do that more for the sake of why I just love composing. It's like a puzzle, and I want to make sure that I include all of the relevant pieces when making something original.
0: Do you have a wider palette, then? You have a larger vocabulary to draw on as a composer if you do consider those other elements.
1: I would certainly say so, yeah. I might compare that to the work I do in medicine. I have a background not only in administration and research development, but also in, in clinical practice. And when I'm helping solve problems as part of a team, I draw on a wide breadth of experience. And I'm also completely flattered of your kind words about the way that I compose music. And I will also, you know, I'll predicate that I'm certainly not the most talented or the most apt or anything. I'm surrounded by people who inspire me constantly that do this well. You know, my unique take on it though is that I am able to draw from my diverse background, that I'm able to sit and compose. That I, For example, there's a song on the Cuddle Drug album that came out that's entitled Bed of Thorns. Track one is called Fake Pancakes. We have drum samples. I made drum samples with a kit that we used to record the rest of the drums on the album. I wanted to make like a power pop song, but it's still driven by an acoustic grand piano that plays the entire time. And the best element of that song are two trumpets and alto and tenor saxophone.
0: How did you find musicians who were in the same groove, in the same school as you?
1: Um, finding musicians to make this music real was actually the least of my challenges. I, I mentioned last year when we talked that I've been surrounded by musicians, my best friends. There's, there's, there's no random people in Cuddle Drug. There's nine people now who make up the entire art force, quote unquote. You could see my, my quote hand gestures. But I mentioned last time I played in a band called Ticket to Ride that started when I was in like, I don't know, sixth grade. Those guys are still my best friends in my life. The drummer in that band, Nate Harbaugh, who recently bought a house in Pittston I could th- throw a baseball to his house from here. <laughs> he recorded all the saxophones. He, he came in and we've written music together since we were kids. And he's like, Derek, there's more you can do with this. It's not just my investment. As a producer and as a composer, I can bring all of these diverse elements together, but those diverse elements are in their own right saying, wait a minute. I I, I'm thinking this, this is better here. Why don't we take this approach? There are three sets of brothers now in the cuddle drug band, me and my brother Dylan Frazy, my friend who played in the tickets ride band that is one of the contributing authors of the cuddle drug band. And his brother, Ty is now our live drummer, Nate, who I just mentioned, and his brother Adam Harbaugh is a trumpet player. So there's three sets of brothers. My cousin Patrick plays bass, right? And then we have two very close family friends. I mentioned somebody who is like my brother, David Hines, Chili Dave, who is our our main singer in Cuddle Drug. And I can't fail to mention John Shimp. He's a very close friend of Nate and Adam, who has become a very close friend of mine. And he's an excellent trumpet player. Yeah. And he's he's in school for performance at Susquehanna University. So he's he's a great guy, too. But there's nine of us.
0: It says a lot about what we hear. There is a sound, that deeper level, and the music, if it comes from that place, and it's like jazz improvisation. You can speak to each other Mm -hmm. in a way that makes the music richer.
1: Yes, and I mean, we all draw from different things. My background is classical training. My background is madrigal singing. My background is classical voice and playing and harpsichord and piano and all that stuff. Nate was trained at Bloomsburg, He was originally a music major. Uh, For a very long time, he had an awesome baritone saxophone. I just saw my brother play two jazz gigs in Philadelphia. His Temple band played at Chris's Jazz Cafe on Samson downtown, and then again at Temple, saw both of those shows. Of course, John is immersed in study and is an excellent trumpet player. Adam, he just finished his master's degree. He's a physical trainer, but has played trumpet for years and years and years and was trained under the same umbrella. And as you know, most of these people grew up in the same like three mile radius, <laughs> which is really great. I mean, I've been talking to other news outlets in and around Philadelphia here, Pittsburgh, New York, Boston, you name it. But we're very specifically still a Northeast Pennsylvanian band. We're all children of the Wyoming Valley, save Dave, who is from Reading, And Patrick, who lives in Pottstown, but his entire family, our entire family, all from here. He spent his summers with me up here when we were kids. This is why I call it an art force. It's hard to call it a band. Bands are dissoluble like water, in my experience. People come and go, you could sub people in and out. This is a creative collective. And we all, I'm burying the headline. Everybody is dedicated to this idea of ongoing mental health advocacy, raising awareness. This time around, we're raising awareness and funds for something else that is super, super close to us as people, which is addiction recovery access. Without getting too deep into it, we've all been touched and affected so greatly by issues surrounding substance abuse, recovery, supporting people that we love. And of course, not trying to pretend that we have all of the answers or that our steps that we're taking to raise awareness and to raise money for addiction recovery access is the way to do it. We're not pretending that we understand everybody's experience or that we know the best way. We're just trying to provide a little tiny puzzle piece in whatever way we can, much like how last year we raised money for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline we didn't want to say that, that this is a, a negative thing or that we are the experts on how people should get help we're just encouraging people that you should and could and will get help expanding access that type of thing everybody in this band i speak for us very firmly and we say we're all unified and really driving home there was no question at all that we were going to donate proceeds from this album even before i brought it up fundamentally after we brought this album through to fruition, which we didn't even really realize we were going to make a full-length album this time around. It kind of came out of nowhere. It snuck up on us. And it was 10 times the production effort that we put into the full-length last year and produced a lot of it ourselves, mixed and mastered a lot of it ourselves, like an avalanche, it came upon us. So Bed of Thorns was originally supposed to be a three-song EP. It is now a 13-song monstrosity. It was supposed to be a follow-up to an EP that we released in 2019 called Bed of Roses. And I hope I get this right. That Bed of Roses put forward an idea, set forward an idea, like an an overlying theme of the three songs, that there is bad in every good situation, right? Here is this Bed of Roses, but there's still bad. There is still something that cuts you. And I've since then been writing on the contrapositive theme. On the opposite that there is good in every bad situation bed of bed of roses there's bad in every good situation bed of thorns there is good in every bad situation which is why we're donating proceeds from this album to benefit addiction recovery but there is good in every bad bed of thorns all you can see is the stem but there's still a beautiful rose
0: when you do composing and you have a passion for something like that that is issue of observing good in bad and bad in good is not didactic. It's just a recognition of the way life is. Oh, absolutely. Yes.
1: One thing that we spoke about last year, I remember I was really trying to push the idea of the gray area. And at least in our experience, of course, I can't speak for everybody, but it seems to me like all of my growth, all of my most demonstrable growth, all of my most important growth has come from a place of only in the gray area. The explanation, the true answer to the question is between the black and the white, somewhere blurred, whether it's more towards either side, which is why, again, with this album, this year, we're attempting to bring that forward with the allegory of the rose and the thorn. That is, that is simply the device that we are using to extrapolate on that through the lens of mental health, through the lens of addiction and substance abuse. And we tried very... Hard to fit almost every genre we possibly could into this album. People have been asking me over and over and over, what genre is your band? And I said, I don't know, it's something. It could be whatever you want it to be. But the reason why we did that is it's another device in composing that substance abuse, mental health is a spectrum. It is extremely diverse. It varies from person to person. Depending on where you start in the album and listen through, it can be a completely different vibe. <laughs> I mean, even, even times, I didn't listen to it for a month after it was finished. I was hearing it in my sleep, and I needed to give myself some reasonable space to be able to process what we did. And I remember when I finally gave it another listen through, I was like, oh my gosh, what did we make? It's almost like I didn't recognize it at first. I'm not gonna sit here and be like, oh, it was spectacular, but it was it it had a life of its own. It grew. I feel like as I was composing it and as I was producing it and putting it together, it was growing in front of us. Which is interesting because um we have a little claymation blip that my friend made for us. That we're all standing around and Dave throws a seed into the ground and I water the seed and a giant rose emerges from the ground and knocks us all over. And I wanted that to be how we announced the album because that's how I felt like it happened. We come together to try to plant and grow a three song EP to follow up this idea of this EP that we had two years ago. Now, three years ago, and all of a sudden there is a giant rose taller than all of us. I'm finding meaning in this album even now that I didn't even realize I intended to incorporate. It's it's uh, it's frighteningly beautiful at times.
0: What does beautiful mean to you? Because we know that beauty isn't just pretty. There's a depth and there can be pain of uh, broken beauty. And why do we need it? Is it healing?
1: I think healing is beauty. I think that there is more beauty in a situation that is redeemed from the darkest it could be. I have a lot more respect for people who have come from the darkest depths of their soul and choose to be good, choose to heal, choose to grow. That to me, and of course I'm not sitting in a place where I judge anybody for how they choose to live their life, but at least how I choose to live my life, I have struggled with what I've written about. I have struggled with issues around suicidality, around mental health, around substance abuse, and I actively choose to live a life where... I not only am healthy and happy and, and helpful, but that I could genuinely create in ways that help other people if they choose to want to do a similar thing. Not that what I'm doing is what's good for everybody. Not that, not that I think that there is one road that people should travel in order to be okay. I just want everybody to realize that the most beautiful situation is one that you yourself have pulled back together from being the ugliest it could possibly be and that's all in the gray area right (laughs) i feel like i'm waxing and waning philosophical again we do this erica we did this last year we did yeah we did but we don't write surface level songs that's why i'm saying it's crazy how much i'm now discovering later as i've listened as people are starting to come to me and say wow it's really crazy that you wrote this that's in reference to this i'm like wow, I did that, didn't I? <laughs> and it's true. There are some little blips on this album that follow up on songs that I wrote when I, it was 2010. It was the first Cuddle Drug album. And I'm like, wow, did I really just follow up on that? I guess I did. I actually did. There's no way I couldn't have, <laughs> looking at it in retrospect.
0: But you weren't ready to write it until now, that follow up. I, I
1: don't up. think I was prepared emotionally or as a musician to be able to compose the answer to the question I posed. I guess hindsight's 2022 20, <laughs> or something like
0: that. All right, let's go back to madrigals. Madrigals, the richness of the intertwining of the voices and so forth, but the text is so important as well. What did you learn about writing lyrics? Did you learn something about writing lyrics oh, by. Oh, yes.
1: That's probably fr- where I gained most insight for lyrical composition. Madrigals to me are very funny because the content varies so much. And the device of the music sometimes contrasts that. There are some madrigals that are cheekily being like, oh, these two people are kissing over there on the hill. And the music reflects that, you know, it's bouncy and kind of funny and ha 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 ha. And then there are other texts that say a similar thing, but put it forward in a somber, dark, contemplative way that you're like, wait, are they really writing about love? That's interesting to me because the two devices are contrasting, leaving it up to the listener to decide what is the prevailing aspect of that particular setting. Similarly, there are some madrigals that write about very, very happy things in, in a dark way, but there are, there are other madrigals that, that put forward very dark things in a happy way. April is in my mistress face. It's one of my favorite madrigals I used to sing with John when I was a student of his at SEM and it's cheeky. It's kind of like a little bit of a side at the end. It's describing how beautiful this mistress is, how beautiful this woman is, right? April is in my mistress' face and July in her eyes hath placed. And then at the end describes that yeah, all of this but in her heart a cold December. And it's it's cheeky because at the end it's it's beautiful to a fault. You get to the end and you're like, "Oh, wow." Here's a Picardy third, it's major, it ends It ends major, but it's also saying her heart is cold. So I, I, as a singer, as a musician, as a performer, always in that dichotomy. So it's to me very natural that I've gone for that in my own band. Very interesting. Thank you for teasing that out of my brain.
0: When we were speaking about the album that came out of the Suicide Contemplation, that you all were affected by by the loss of a friend, Mm -hmm. What happens when you play that music live for an audience? You just trust them to get it or let the music speak to them on some level and hope that somehow it gets beyond the defenses. How do you think that works?
1: Um, I know that you're familiar with sometimes when media outlets display troubling materials, they'll say, hey, this is what's about to happen, trigger warning in a similar way. When we play music that is directly addressing issues of mental health, I always, when we perform live, not like warn everybody, but say, hey, this is the part where I actually talk about the seriousness of what we're talking about here, but in a positive, hopeful, uplifting way. We don't have any songs that are directly bummers. That's one thing that we always strive for. There's always a redeeming aspect. There's always something that brings it around to, wait a minute, it's okay even if it's so dark. Much like April is in my mistress' face starts so positive and ends with, oh gosh. Even if we start so negative, we end at a positive. But I explain that. And I say, this is why we do what we do. This is how we do what we do. Resources are available. I've gotten in the habit of saying three strikes and you are not out. There's always one more thing that you can do. Our band is a vehicle for raising awareness. Our our band is a vehicle for helping people realize that it's okay. And we play these songs. Um, Some songs that we put on that album last year are still too painful for me to play. I only recently was able to actually listen to one song that was on an album last year called I'm Scared of Guns. It's about being scared of how capable everybody is of, you know, making really bad decisions from a place where their mental health isn't great. And I, I sang about that directly in myself. But at the end of that song, I am healthy when I make my own decisions. I'm healthy when I'm afraid of guns. I was finally able to actually resolve my own feelings about that song by hearing me speak to myself a year later and say, you know, you are healthy. I'm glad to say that I've come a very, very long way with my own mental health. Of course, not an expert. I have to keep saying that. I'm, I'm not trying to tell anybody how they should address their own mental health. I'm only saying that, yes, please address it. But I'm I'm a little bit of a woohoo victory here. I'm 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 expressing victoriousness. Not that struggles with mental health have a finish line, but I've finally reached a place where I'm okay. I'm very okay in such a way that it's a process. It's an ongoing process that I've finally achieved. But sometimes playing that music is too difficult. This new music affects you know, it's always so fresh. We just wrote about everything. The, the Bed of Thorns album, it's still, it's still so pertinent in our lives. There's a lot of it that we're not going to be able to play for a long time, and I'm aware of that and respectful of not only myself, but also the people that I make music with, the other authors here. We only do what we can do when we're ready to do it. Anything else, mental health comes first, right? People, people want us to play these songs. We'll do it when we're ready.
0: Who's noticing? Who listens to Cuddle Drug other than people who are your friends? How do you get the word out? Is it more than just the eastern coast of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, to northeastern Pennsylvania? How does your music get okay. out there?
1: I mean, we've, we've never really striven to be a super popular band. I'm super flattered that even though we don't do that, we have started to gain international recognition even. I run a little tiny record label for the sake of putting out the music that I'm involved with. It's called Silverwood Records. It used to be called the Timetable Records Collective that was based here. Now it is jointly based here and in Philadelphia. To legitimize and protect all of the assets, all of the music, um, for the sake of licensing and distribution, all under one roof. And I run this little record label. And as a function of that record label, I could see statistics on distribution. Spotify. This is the part of the show where I say that you can find Cuddle Drug everywhere. It's on most major streaming platforms and also on our own website, Cuddledrug.com. That's where you can find information about everything. But, for example, I have a Spotify for artists. We have statistics. We have countries. We can figure out where everybody is streaming from. And one of the things that's starting to really, really flatter me and give me a lot of hope that our message is making it all the way to the ends of the earth is that people are reaching out to us. Lots on the West Coast. We're going to have to go out there. (laughs) And I've been out there before with bands. I've toured on on the West Coast. I've toured throughout the U.S. Um, I've played some shows in Canada. I've been in Europe a few times with different bands, bands that I've been involved in writing for, bands that I've been involved with playing with. But this time seems more organic. I'm not going there and demonstrating my music to people. It's that they found it. And I'm like, wow. The the spread of this is getting the, the invisible strings that connect us all. I'm starting to be so humbled and flattered that people, I have no idea of who they are, are coming and the message that we're putting forward matters to them.
0: spoke with Derek Jolly, composer, producer, and musician, and we talked about his life in music expressed through his band, Cuddle Drug. They call it an art force, a musical collective. The group recently released an album titled Bed of Thorns, musicians using their talents to serve a world in need of healing. For more information on the web, it's Cuddledrug.com, Cuddledrug.com, C-U-D-D-L-E-D-R-U-G, Cuddledrug Cuddledrug.com. And Derek Jolly is spelled D-E-R-E-K-J-O-L-L-E-Y.